Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Brian Wazalowski, and it's time to talk tech. In this episode, we talk about patent politics. Yes, intellectual property is incredibly political, and today we find out how different approaches to patents in the United States and Europe can lead to very different policy outcomes, especially around controversial issues such as patenting life forms. And we'll be talking about why global media development professionals should be engaging in the many internet governance bodies. Yes, if you care about a vibrant media sector in developing nations, you're going to want to make sure you have a voice on how the greatest distributor of news, the internet, functions. Intellectual property rights have always had a political component to them, whether they are being negotiated in secret as part of trade deals, or high-powered lobbyist groups are duking it out over how long the terms of a copyright should last. Patents are certainly among the most political forms of IP and perhaps the most valuable. If you've watched an episode of Shark Tank, you know just how important having a patent is to those investors. In her new book, Patent Politics, Shobita Partha Sarathi explores the social and political influences on patent policy and law in both the U.S. and Europe. She looks at some of the biggest controversies around patents, such as attempts to patent life forms, and details how different approaches to policy in the U.S. and EU lead to starkly different outcomes. Shobita, who was in fact my professor, I'll do a plug here, at the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan, joins us on Tech Talk to share some insights from her book. Welcome, Shobita. Thanks, Brian. So good to hear you're doing so well. Oh, thank you. And of course, I'm sure I was one of your favorite students, um, and not just because I'm interviewing you, but uh, why not? (laughs) Sure. Sure. So congratulations on the book. It's wonderful. Love the cover, too. Tell us a bit about it. What motivated you to research this uh, topic and write about it? Sure. Thanks. So, you know, I've actually been kind of weirdly obsessed with patents for for a really long time since I was in graduate school. Um, I came to graduate school with a scientific background. I have a bachelor's degree in biology. And at the time, when I was first learning about, I was taking classes in biotech policy and biotech and society, and I got really fascinated by the idea that the law could distinguish between unpatentable nature on the one hand and patentable technology on the other, between unpatentable discovery on the one hand and patentable invention on the other, and that those distinctions had enormous scientific, economic, and social significance. And so I was interested in that, but I was also interested in the idea that there was this logic to the patent system that patents were necessary to stimulate innovation and ultimately to benefit society. So that was sort of my initial, I had a lot of questions, but patents then became centrally important actually in my first book, um, which was published in 2007 by MIT Press. It's called Building Genetic Medicine. And that was about the development of genetic testing for breast and ovarian cancer in the US and Britain. And human gene patents actually played a big role in um, genetic testing and the availability of genetic therapies. And as I told that story, and in the course of doing research for that book, I discovered that the U.S. and Europe seem to approach bio- 
biotech patents really differently. Um, and so I, I wanted to find out why that was the case, especially when we're talking about patent systems that seem to be highly technical and also bound by multiple international legal agreements. So those kernels were kind of set then, and then it sort of led to a long odyssey of, um, of doing research for this book. Very fun. So you already touched on this a little bit, but um, your book certainly focuses on the differences in how patents are approached, both in the EU and US. And you note that in the US, it's mostly a legal or technological lens. And in Europe, they have much more of a social and moral view. Tell us a little bit more about that and what sort of impact it has on the outcomes in both places. Differences that I highlight throughout the book, and I and I sort of, as you say, um, there are these big differences in terms of the U.S. thinking about patents as techno legal, and and Europeans thinking about them as socioeconomic and moral. Tied to those differences are a bunch of really interesting differences in terms of um, the logics uh, of how the systems work and how they think about the public interest. So, for mm. example, I argue in the book that in the U.S. context, we tend to think about the public interest as being synonymous with the inventor's interest, whereas in the European context, it's evolved to uh, not necessarily assume that the public, invent public interest and inventor's interests are the same and that the role of government is to engage in, in some kind of balancing. And alongside of that, you have a number of sort of cascading differences in terms of governance and policy. So in the U.S., we tend to think about the patent system, partially because we see it as technical and highly legal, as a really narrow administrative law domain that's separate from the regulatory apparatus. Uh, but in the European context, the patent system is more integrated into the governance of science and technology, so the European Patent Office doesn't just see itself as a place where patent applications are processed, it sees its role as a policy organization that has to be aware of and part of policy discussions around science and technology um, and its, and its uh, implications and its future. Alongside that, then, you have differences that are associated in terms of how the two systems think about knowledge and expertise. So given what I've already said, it, you know, it's not surprising then that the U.S. Uh, tends to see only scientific and legal expertise as relevant and only certain kinds of scientific and legal expertise, that is, to sort of prove whether something is novel or mm -hmm. non-obvious, for example, whereas in the European system, they take more account of social scientific and humanistic uh, work and analysis. And then finally, there are differences in terms of how, whether the public has a role, whether public... Um, uh, um, whether there are easy avenues to participate. So sure. um, in the U.S., we, because the public interest is seen as the same as the inventor's interest, the people that are invited to participate in the domain tend to be those who are stakeholders, patent applicants, and the people who represent them, whereas in the European context, not only is the scope wider for average citizens and civil society groups, there are actually institutionalized spaces for average citizens to, to play a role and to influence the system. So, I mean, as you describe that, I, I'm really totally bought into the European system. Does, does that lead to better outcomes in your perspective when you engage the public, engage different types of perspectives? Are they, are they if, you, if we all agree that you know patents should have benefit to the inventor but also to the broader society is europe doing a better job of 
for lack of a better word, striking a balance between these uh-huh. two motives? You ask a question that I tend to shy away from uh, <laughs> because so, so much of the book is about how the system, two systems are really legitimately trying to achieve different goals. Ah. Uh, but I, and they would, so therefore they would define a better outcome differently in some important ways. Um, but because you're my former student, and because oh, I'm going to thank you better than that, um, and say, okay, so what do I mean when I say that the two places are thinking differently about a better outcome? So in the U.S. system, they tend to privilege efficiency. They tend to privilege objectivity and transparency and adhering to procedures, and they tend to privilege the issuance of more patents. So the idea is that okay. sort of we, you know, the patent office will issue more patents. Is, you know, any relevant concerns will get litigated, um, and there's a real focus on efficiency, as I said, and sort of technical governance. By contrast, the pan-European system tends to privilege. Um, higher quality patents, that's language that you tend to hear a lot uh, in the European context, and they, um, by that they mean that they tend to get, um, they're less likely to be challenged in later legal proceedings, and that they're narrower. But I wouldn't say that they're as efficient as, as the U.S. system. The other thing, obviously, and you mentioned this, is that they also tend to privilege public responsiveness, and even, I'd argue, consideration of public concerns. I'd, I'd say that in the U.S. system, and this is something that I get at quite a bit throughout the book, the, you know, because the system in the U.S. context is seen as fundamentally apolitical, responsiveness to public concern is seen as somehow polluting, I would argue. Whereas in the European context, the, the argument is this is a policy domain, this is not an apolitical domain, and therefore we need to consider... Um, uh, public concerns in a different way. So, so, so it is really that they're that they're um, trying to achieve different goals. But then, as to whether or not we we like one system over the other, <laughs> on some level, it depends on on what kind of governance approach we like. Okay. Well, there we. That was a, a very good answer. That was not a non-answer, so you, you did a nice job, and I appreciate that. Um, so let's go to some examples. I mean, your book is really packed with some great examples, and I thought it was fascinating the way you really focused on um, life forms and patents and in you know how controversial they are. Can you walk us through maybe one or two of those examples in your book where you really you know delve into the different systems and the way patents play out, especially when it comes to life forms? Sure. So patents overall are incredibly controversial and they've only become increasingly controversial over the last I'd say 20-25 years. What's interesting to me about life form patents is that all of the different kinds of concerns that we've heard around patents come to a head in the context of life form patents. So, you know, if you take the sort of whole swath of issues, there's a growing concern that patents might stifle innovation sometimes. And we've heard that, you know, Elon Musk famously gives up his patent rights to electronic cars. There's a broad concern about whether patents are leading to increased costs for life-saving technologies. And we hear about that in the context of access to so-called essential medicines and whether people are being priced out 
of buying medicines that, that they need to survive. And then there's this uh, broad concern about increasing privatization of the public um, domain, and we hear that concern when we're talking about traditional or indigenous knowledge, for example. What's interesting to me, and something that I just demonstrate throughout the book, is that while you see that whole swath of concerns coming up around life form patents, they each have different valences in the two places. So let me give you the example of human embryonic stem cells that I talk about, I talk about in the book. Sure. So in the U.S. context, the human embryonic stem cell debate pretty quickly focuses on questions around the right to research and stifling innovation. And that's particularly weird because, of course, we know that the human embryonic stem cell debate raises all of these questions about the moral status of embryos and doing research at all. But when it comes to the patent system, the only question that's deemed relevant is a question about stifling innovation. Whereas in the European context, there's kind of a mixed set of worries that arises around um, rights partially to research, but although that's been addressed actually a little bit already through law in the European context, but rights to life-saving technologies, and specifically whether or not patents on human embryonic stem cells will lead to the commodification of human embryos, of human life. And it isn't just pro-life groups in the European context who are making this argument. In fact, you know, so Greenpeace is making that argument as well. So, so one of the things that's really interesting to me is that the world, kind of world of the patent system, looks pretty different in these two places. There are different groups involved. There are different issues involved. And at the end, so for example, in the human embryonic stem cell case, um, human embryonic stem cells were deemed unpatentable in Europe, and they were deemed patentable in the U.S. But as I suggested before, to me, that's important. But what's even more important is that the two systems are developing very different ways of thinking about the questions that I think have reverberations um, much more broadly than biotech. Sure. So how about I uh, push you a little bit here and say you've now looked at both of these systems. Not which one is better, but if you had to reform patents patent policy, you know, globally, what are some things that would be good patent policy or good patent systems? So I started, I, I mentioned this a little bit before, but I kind of want to um, return to this point about, um, you know, the idea that patents are not apolitical. Um, and one of the reasons that I harp on that is that, you know, if we treat patents as apolitical, then we tend to think it's exceptional. We don't think it should be subject to the same kinds of um, democratic scrutiny that other forms of governance do. And what I've tried to do throughout the book, both through historical and comparative work, is to say, no, these systems are deeply political. They're shaped by culture, by political culture, by ideology, by history. And so, and they are involving different kinds of calculations and values um, in these two places. And if we sort of remove the idea that the patent system is so exceptional, then we can start to have, I think, a better set of conversations about how to balance um, expert knowledge and expertise on the one hand and public concern on the other, especially in democratic contexts. And now, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is that there are, in fact, this is a perennial problem uh, for policy institutions, not just science <laughs> technology policy institutions, yep. but 
science and technology policy institutions, other institutions, have tended to do a better job than the patent system. They wrestle with this question too, um, but there are more institutional spaces for, for um, public concern. In some countries, they have found ways to kind of bureaucratize ethics conversations and ethical, um, ethical analysis. So, so those are the things that I think we need to think about in the context um, of the patent system in, in particular. The second thing I would say is that there's a, there's, you know, a really pervasive argument that patent systems are just not the place to deal with these kinds of socioeconomic and moral issues, um, or sort of a weaker version of that argument, it's just too difficult to rethink patent systems in the ways that um, I'm suggesting. So in that case, what I would argue is that we need to take seriously the fact that science and technology benefit us, but they can also have these kinds of negative socioeconomic and moral implications, and we do need to find places to have these conversations and to come up with policy solutions. This is a real weakness, I would argue, in contemporary govern governance, and I don't think we can just say that science and technology are always new and they always are posing new problems and we don't know how to deal with you know, the fact that thanks to you know, our um, uh, patent and pricing apparatus, drugs are really expensive. Um, you know, we have a long history of experiencing and analyzing science and technology, and I think we can do a better job of predicting, assessing, and addressing these issues better than we think we can. And as I said, there are these sort of isolated examples of places that we can draw some um, ideas from. That's what, you know, it, I'm always, as I suggested, a little bit reluctant to say, oh, well, we can take these ideas from Europe and draw them <laughs> into the West, uh, or vice versa. Right. But, there, but those kinds of analyses do give us a little bit of, um, at least they give us ideas to think about and to think through, because we are in a situation, I think, now, not only is the patent system under increased scrutiny, science and technology policy institutions are under increased scrutiny. I would argue that elite and technocratic governance is um, under um, greater concern and scrutiny. And so we, I think it's certainly from my perspective, it's partially my job to think through how we can do a better job of valuing expert knowledge and expertise on the one hand, while still making sure that there's a, a space um, to consider broader um, public concern. Well, it sounds like you should be partnering with the Center for Democracy and Technology more. I mean, what you just described, we are the center of those conversations. So we'll have to bring <laughs> patents in here, right? <laughs> All right, Shavita. Well, we are out of time, uh, but I do want to, of course, plug your book one more time. It's called Patent Politics. Be sure to pick up a copy. I did just check Amazon this morning, and it actually had one of those notes that said just a few copies left. So it must be a hot ticket. Congratulations on that. And we'll have to have you back on as you do more work on, on this issue or other ones. I definitely will. <laughs> Take care. A vibrant and independent media sector is without question a key underpinning of democracy. And there are a number of incredible groups out there working to promote and support the development of the sector in developing countries worldwide. One of these organizations, the Center for International Media Assistance, has just released a new guidebook that they developed with Article 19 
and it encourages media development professionals to extend their work and start engaging in the somewhat complicated world of internet governance. I have a whole crew of collaborators here who developed the report, Corinne Kath, Niels Tenovar, Daniel O'Malley, and Mevish Ansari. Get those all right? These are the most guests we've had, so that, that was a tough one for me. So they're all going to join us today, talk about the report, tell us a little bit about their organizations, and also share some experience about um, how they've been rolling it out. So welcome all. Thank you. First, there we go. That's an enthusiastic group. So first, very, uh, I thought it was a wonderful report, and I really think that folks that are just interested in internet governance in general should read it, or people who have no clue what internet governance is, not just media professionals, um, media development professionals, right? All right, so I'm going to start first with you. Tell me a bit about um, your organization, SEMA, the acronym. We love acronyms on the show. What you guys do and why you were interested in internet governance. The Center for International Media Assistance is a media development think tank that's based at the National Endowment for Democracy. And a lot of people ask, what is media development? What does that mean, right? I asked that, yeah. Yes, you did. <laughs> and what we're talking about is how do we build healthy, sustainable media ecosystems, especially in developing countries, so that people can get access to high quality news and information. So it's really about making sure that citizens have the, the kind of knowledge tools that they need to be well informed to participate in democratic societies. So that's uh, kind of what, what we're, th the broad goal. SEMA uh, is a think tank that looks at trying to build best practices on how to approach this in different places. Uh, so our interest in internet governance comes from the fact that increasingly all forms of media are uh, converging on the internet. So, you know, whether it's television, radio, or online outlets, it depends on how the internet uh, it develops going forward, how it's governed. So, um, you know, in many countries around the world, the only way you can actually access independent media is through the internet. And this is especially true in, in closed societies where there is a uh, government monopoly on media. So that's where our interest comes uh, in engaging in internet governance. We think it's something that the media development community should be more involved in. That's great. That's great. So Article 19, folks, we've got Corinne and Niels um, and Mavish. Why did oh, Mavish? Sorry, screwed that up. I keep messing it up. So, so many names. It's hard for me to keep them straight. Go ahead and tell me why you guys wanted to work with media development professionals and what you brought to this guidebook that you developed. Um. I think we wanted to work with media professionals for the same reasons that Dan just indicated. That it's really important for a more broad uh, group of people to get involved. Because right now, the people you see involved in internet governance are pretty diverse. So you have states, you have businesses, you have civil society people. But in the end, considering how important the internet is to media, it's really necessary for those debates to be influenced by the actual case studies of what is going on in certain countries with the media. And the only way to do that is by starting to make clear like why this is an issue that is relevant for everybody and also because of some of the reasons that you mentioned earlier like this place is a acronym soup <laughs> it is not easy to get involved if you don't know where to start so what we wanted to do is like provide a very clear roadmap of like these are five uh, important internet governance bodies these are five important topics as related to media development and here are a bunch of strategies and a bunch of concrete ways that you can get involved that's great so so speaking of the acronym soup in this re the report the guidebook you list five of them you have ICANN, IGF, ITU, 
IEEF or IEEE and IETF. So that's that's a lot of acronyms, a lot of I's, a lot of E's. Um, you all have participated in some of these or all of these at some point. Are any of them, you know, I'd love to hear your experiences on them, but are any of them, do you think, more important for media development professionals, ones that they should really be thinking about engaging in? Um, sure. I, I think what is really interesting about internet governance is that you can't see it as individual organizations. Like it's an ecosystem. So what happens in one space is going to have an influence in the other. Hmm. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to give you the answer of you have to go to all of them. And, oh gosh, and I'm tired <laughs> already. <laughs> um, and it really helps to understand how all the different technical stuff that happens there relates to each other. But once you do figure that out, and that's another thing that we try to sort of show in this guide, it's like, this is how this relates to that, and there it all comes together in one spot. Uh, once you figure that out, you can be extremely effective. So I'm going to pivot to Mavis. You just came back from Dubai, right, or Abu Dhabi? Which one was it? It was Dubai, yeah. Dubai. And that was the ITU one? What was that like, and what, what sort of reaction did you get as you shared this there? Yeah. Um, the, the ITU is an interesting space, uh, particularly when you see the other um, internet governance bodies that we talk about in the report. Um, when you look at the IETF and ICANN, you see that these are robust multi-stakeholder bodies where um, you have a lot of different groups participating and coming together um, with, with similar objectives in mind, if not the same. Um, the ITU is a UN specialized agency, and it really lives up to that title <laughs> in the sense that it in is... In a good way, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's different, right? So yeah. um, when we're talking Very about... Very diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, good for the ITU. Um, <laughs> it is uh, multilateral, which means that member states rule. And uh, when we're talking about uh, national government delegations coming together and talking about standards development, um, that really changes the way that media developers need to understand how to engage, right? So instead of directly participating, understanding the national delegations that they want to get involved in, um, and, and seeing what the makeup is of those particular delegations. Some countries are very interested in having a multi-stakeholder makeup. Um, they want different sectors involved, um, helping them um, cultivate positions on standards development. Um, and uh, others have open consultation processes. Um, and so really understanding where the positions are, wh what different na nation states have with their, their, their positions within the ITU, um, seeing where that can be leveraged, um, and that, that's, about, that's just as important as understanding the issues themselves as they're cropping up within the ITU. Okay. Um, now let's talk about the other ones. And I mean, ITU is probably the one who the fingers were pointed at the most when uh, folks were screaming that we were giving the internet away to Russia, right? Um, or something like Russia and China. Um, not the case, right? Um, the other bodies, you both, Niels, Corinne, tell me about them. Like, what, what are the ones, what are the different experiences? Um, Mavish brought up multi-stakeholder, which is just that word, multi-stakeholderism is it something we even talk about here. You know, they embody it. A lot of people want to model that, think it's a fairly good form of governance. And that's the fact that they have that is the reason that the media development professionals can actually engage in these. So tell me about one of them. Pick your favorite. Well, <laughs> the interesting thing is that there is not so much something like the multi-stakeholder model. There are many different multi-stakeholder models. Yeah. And all these uh, organizations, fora, have their different uh, institutional config configuration, which have different affordances. 
So they stimulate certain kind of behavior and they make other things more different. I'm not saying one is worse or better, or we that's maybe up for historians to decide. <laughs> but for now, we just need to work with them. And uh, as friends of the podcast will know, they will have followed the Ayana transition oh, yes. uh, last <laughs> year, where it was really the first time where a sovereign state, namely the United States of America, uh, gave away stewardship over such a key resource, such as the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, or actually the coordination mechanism for names and numbers, the uh, IANA functions. And as part of that transition, we ensured that a core value was embedded in ICANN's bylaws. Uh, we managed to make that happen, but that bylaw would only be activated once we had a framework of interpretation for the bylaw developed. So that it is really clear what was meant with the bylaw. Currently, we're working hard on that. I just came back from the ICANN meeting uh, number 58 in Copenhagen, where we worked hard on coming up with, uh, uh, with that framework of interpretation. So that once that has been improved, we can go full continue and then embed uh, this respecting human rights in all policies and operations in ICANN. That's great. Corinne, did you have anything you wanted to add in terms of... Sure, uh, I think another really interesting thing that's coming up right now is the Internet Engineering Task Force meeting in Chicago starting this uh, Sunday. And what is uh, something that we're really looking forward to participating is on Wednesday they have their plenary meeting, which is like the, one of the biggest uh, moments in the, in the week-long meeting. And this will be the first time that they will focus that meeting on discussing human rights, uh, awesome. which is very, very exciting. It's been something that we've been working on for a long time with uh, our work within the Internet Research Task Force, which is the research subsidiary of the IETF where uh, Niels co-chairs the Human Rights Protocol Considerations Group. Uh, we recently published a long, long document there that sort of gives uh, engineers a guideline of how to check if their protocols has an impact on human rights, and if so, what kind of an impact. Um, and that whole discourse has really caught on, and that's a very uh, exciting thing to see. Great. And IETF, Alyssa Cooper, CDT alum, has just taken over the, the leadership of it. Boom. She's amazing. Boom. Boom. You know, yeah. we have great people, and yeah. she is incredible. So awesome. congrats. I hope she listens to our podcast. I'm not sure she does. She at least follows me on Twitter, though, so I feel good about <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Daniel, you were going to chime in. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was just going to say that, um, you know, I'm headed to RightsCon next week, which isn't an internet... Ditto, event. I'll see you there. Oh, okay. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I'll have to <laughs> hang yes. out. Excellent. Um, and, you know, it's not an internet governance body, but it's a, a, a meeting where many people who are in the digital rights field, people who are interested in internet governance come together, and we're excited about sharing this report there as well. And I think, going back to your original question about, you know, which body is it? Do we want to, you know, pay attention to? Um, and one of the things that we try to do in this report is identify different bodies, kind of what the topics that they focus on so that other people can decide and prioritize. Because, you know, as Corinne, Niels, Mevish know, I'll, I'll, it takes a lot of resources to be really fully engaged. And so we might need to do more strategy at events like RightsCon among civil society activists to think, how are we going to tackle this together? Because we can't all do everything. Right. So we need to divide up forces. And luckily, the folks at Article 19, my colleagues here, have been doing some amazing work 
on human rights at ICANN, at IETF. And so we need to try and figure out how we can get more people involved in those efforts. Fantastic. Did you go ahead? Yeah, so something that we're seeing is that um, <coughs> companies are excellent at forum shopping. So they're finding the right place to push their idea. And if it doesn't work in one place, then they'll go to the other. So water will always flow to the lowest point. So for <laughs> us, it's crucial that we are at all those places because it's never clear where that lowest point will be. And uh, we've seen this in the civil society sphere. We've seen things move from, uh, uh, from standards bodies to bilateral treaties, to uh, trade agreements, to internet governance bodies. And so I think it's very crucial for civil society to build that capacity and understanding of who is uh, present where. And that indeed we also have our own fora and channels where we can coordinate and uh, uh, which will allow us to ensure that the internet, but also the world outside the internet is actually a human rights enabling place. Fantastic. No, well, I think sort of going back to also the, the underlying question of why does this matter? Because that's obviously a question that we very often get um, is that, as Dan had mentioned, the internet is increasingly becoming important to the media sphere, but also the infrastructure that underlies that is what fundamentally defines what kind of discussions are possible, what kind of human rights are protected and which aren't, what kind of practices are enabled and which are not. And that is sort of the greater point that we're trying to cross, get across in this guide is people should get involved because even if you don't feel it now, what the infrastructure of the internet looks like is going to matter to you at some point. And it's better to get involved now when that is not a negative kind of influence you're perceiving, but when you still feel that you have something to add to that debate. Great point. I realize I never actually said the name of this uh, wonderful paper and report <laughs> you did. Media Development in the Digital Age, Five Ways to Engage in Internet Governance. Where can folks find this? Is it online? Yeah. yeah people uh, can find it online on SEMA's website at sema.ned.org. And SEMA is C-I-M-A. C-I-M-I. C-I-M-A. See, there we go. We there got we it. Go. <laughs> <laughs> .ned.org backslash IG for media dev. Um, and we will make sure that link is in our, you know, materials on this podcast. So that'll be great. And in case you dislike reading. <laughs> um, what? No one dislikes reading. No, but you're listening to a podcast. That's so a good point. A, uh, So you might want to uh, watch a film we made about uh, human rights and internet protocols. And you can check that out at hrpc.io. Fantastic. So everyone has some reading, some listening, and now some viewing to do. That's fantastic. Any last thoughts before I let you go and continue your visit uh, for the folks visiting and Daniel, who lives here? Get on with your tour of this wonderful guidebook. I mean, I, if there's anything that I would like to say is that I would hope for people to read this and get involved. Because we really need more good qualified people, especially from the civil society, to get engaged. Um, read the guide, look at the websites we just mentioned, reach out to us, like you can always reach us and we can get back to you, but do it, because like, if you're not going to, then somebody else will, and they might not have your best interest in mind. That's perfect. So be sure to check out article, oh, sorry, did you want to, please, 
Yeah, we got so many final wisdoms. Yeah, I like more wisdom. <laughs> you never want to cut off a last word of no, wisdom. No, so. <laughs> no, it's, it's a supplement to what Corinne was saying. Oh, perfect. Um, I, I think the, the guide is, is more, I mean, if you're interested in internet governance at all, it's a great introduction. Um, you don't have to be in media development in order to find um, a lot of, uh, a lot of, of ways to get involved in, in internet governance. If, like we said, the, the alphabet soup is... Um, is inundating. So just to be able to look through the guide and see the mapping and how these issues intersect across these different forums, um, it, it helps kind of put the uh, put things into broader perspective. Awesome. Well, like I guess oh. what is really cool is that there are two great reasons to get into internet governance, and it's one is that the people working in and on internet governance are extremely gifted individual individuals <laughs> over no, over yeah. all stakeholder groups. So your enemies will be powerful and your allies will be smart. So it is, uh, it is, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a great place. It sounds to like work. Game of Thrones. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, it's not it's that it, bad, it, is it? it? It's, it's, it's better. <laughs> it's better, okay. I, you don't get that dirty. But okay. <laughs> that's good. Um, the, uh, and the next thing is, is like, the internet will be what we want it to be. Like we had times where the internet was our big dream of of of, of escaping, and now it's been a, a place of dystopia. But the pl internet is pretty much the place that we want it to be, and we can shape it. The shaping happens here. So if you want to shape the internet, join Internet Governance. Oh, wow, that is the best pitch for internet governance I've ever heard. That's fantastic. So it's a great report. Everyone check it out. We'll make sure the links are in everywhere so you can find it. Mavish, Niels, Corinne, and Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. It's been wonderful having you. Thanks. Thank Bye. You. Bye. <laughs>